this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Just like our latest patron, Matthew Wagner, just did joining us at the $2 level. Thank you for joining, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jay, speaking of patrons, we've, mm-hmm. got one, we've got one with us to, to select or to, or unveil his pick for this year. He's been here before. Now let's find the common thread. His previous picks include <laughs> Guar yeah. and Material Issue. Rara, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not seeing the theme here. So uh, logically, this should be, if you're going according to that, a power pop monster band, right? <laughs> which actually just described the Groovy Ghoulies. Yeah. Strangely enough, <laughs> Eric Peterson's like, hey, that was my band. No, uh, welcoming back to the show, Andrew O.C. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm great. Good to hear from you guys. How are you? Great. Sun's out, gun's out. You know what I say? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Got a nice sunburn on the back of my neck, working in the garden, all that kind of fun stuff. So, we're, we're intrigued. You brought us two bands that are diametrically opposed in every way. I think, I think Guar is diametrically opposed to just about everything in existence, sure. so... Maybe There's s- not going to be a lot of a common thread there. I, I'm trying to think of a band that might be in the same... Like, Slipknot wears masks and stuff, but they're not necessarily writing about the same types of stuff that uh, Guar is. I can't even think of a band that's on the same uh, writing songwriting level as Guar. Uh, good or bad. So, but that was, <laughs> a, that, was, that was a fun episode. Jay and I were, were pleasantly surprised by some of it. I also uh, suggested the Verbena one. That oh, one that's right. Sold. That's right. So that's an interesting threesome. So tell the folks playing along at home, both uh, on the recorded version that comes out every Tuesday and our live version that's on for our patrons, uh, what is your pick for this episode? So this year, uh, I took it a totally different direction and uh, selected Eels, uh, second album, Electroshock Blues. Came out in 98. Yes, it did. And for those of you who don't remember or know of Eels... History of the band. The band uh, was formed in L.A. in 1995 by... Multi-instrumentalist songwriter Mark Oliver Everett. He previously went under the name E, just E, and he released a couple records. Uh, one was called A Man Called E, and then another one was called Broken Toy Shop. In those were in '91, I think, and then '93, and then met a guy named Tommy Walter, and they actually formed Eels, 
which is they were one of the first bands signed to the DreamWorks label when that became a thing in the uh, in the mid '90s. They were it was them, and then Elliot Smith was signed shortly yeah. after. So their first album, Beautiful Freak, came out in 1996. That's the one that has Novocaine for the soul. So if you know a single from the 90s by Eels, it's probably that song. And then uh, this record, which we're checking out, Electroshock Blues, that came out two years later. And they've been pretty consistent. I mean, he's never stopped making records, both as a... um, uh, with Eels... And then he also hasn't he done well, I guess it's all been eels. I know there was one Yeah, the Cautionary Tales of Mark Oliver Everett, but that's still an Eels album Eels album. But they've put out a record basically uh in a pretty consistent time frame, like every three, four years between um nineteen ninety six and, and twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen the the deconstruction is the twelfth album by the band. Now it's not the same lineup anymore as those earlier years, but it's always been Mark Oliver Everett. Yeah, he's the only one who's been uh, from day one and on. So how'd you discover Eels? So, um, well, discovering Eels, I I heard Nova Came for the Soul on uh, the radio. It was a cool tune, but I don't think I actually bought that record. Um, I came into being familiar with this record because I was at a... uh, radio station in high school and we were reviewing songs uh for for rotation and uh the song last stop uh this town uh was suggested i thought it was a cool tune um but i the rest of the record did not really grow on 15 year old me uh i became a much bigger fan of the eels uh in the mid 2000s when they put out a record called blinking lights and other revelations and uh sparked a small obsession and I worked my way backwards through the catalog. And um, then I really grew a much deeper appreciation for albums like this one. And they've had, you know, for as they're not a a band that pops in your mind immediately when you think of the nineties, but they had a number of singles that did okay um, in the U S but mostly in the UK. The mm-hmm. starting with Novocaine for the Soul, that was a top ten single in the UK, as well as Susan's House, and then Your Lucky Day in Hell was a top forty single. Last stop, this town was a top forty single in the US, and Novocaine for the Soul was a number one single here in the US. But they had charting singles up through the album that you mentioned, Blinking Lights and Other Revelations in the UK. So, in terms of having a US audience, it was kind of Novocaine for the Soul was the quote-unquote one-hit wonder for this band but Mm -hmm. globally whether it's you know the uk they've done well in um new zealand and the netherlands and ireland and australia canada belgium so they've had some impact it's funny because it's different albums and different cycles for this band have hit at different times like the last couple records have done really well in belgium whereas the uh, stuff from the UK is more centered in like the 90s to early 2000s. So it, it seems like the, the fan base is <laughs> moving around the world. Um, <laughs> no, it's a little bit of a, of a cultish following. Yeah. If, if myself. 
And they did I mean, have uh, a number of songs on soundtracks. That's another important yeah, thing. Yeah, that's what I'm going to comment on. Every once in a while, I, you know, I think there was one on Shrek. I don't know which Shrek, but um, and maybe even like, I, I, I don't know, maybe a Grinch soundtrack. Maybe yeah. a Jim Carrey movie. So uh, they have songs starting in 1996, Homicide Life on the Street. Remember that TV show? There's uh, songs in the movies Gross Point Blank. Scream 2, Dead Man on Campus, American Beauty, Road Trip, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which was a song called Christmas is Going to the Dogs, Shrek, they had a song called My Beloved Monster, they had a show on the, the or the song on the TV show Six Feet Under, um, Scrubs, multiple songs on Six Feet Under, The O.C., Shrek 2, Kicking and Screaming, the Will Ferrell movie, uh, One Tree Hill, scrubs again i mean just over and over shrek the third so they're in all the shrek the halls i've never even seen that i don't know what, what that is lots and lots of i can remember some of those scrubs episodes too and did the entire soundtrack for the movie yes man the jim carrey movie i was unaware of that yep and yeah the, i mean in terms of Bands getting on soundtracks, Eels might be the most successful. <laughs> if you look at it, their appearances, I mean, it is pretty amazing. Up to 2016, I don't know if what, what it's been like after there. But even like shows like Fear the Walking Dead and The Blacklist and, you know, recent shows, American Dad. Like, those are shows that are still on or have been on in the last couple of years. So, Futurama. Yeah, a lot, a lot of shows and and TV placements. So they have, uh, Mark Oliver Everett has a good um, team working those uh, placements for movies and television. That person earning their money. Um, Jay, were you familiar with Eels? I'm sure you heard Novocaine for the Soul, right? Yeah, um, I remember. Um, is it Saturday Morning? Is that the name of the song? Yeah. Um, it's on- Another record. Yeah, I remember that song. I remember just well, like Soul Jacker was kind of a big deal. It just seemed like every couple of years he would put something out and it it would be buzzy. You know, it would I'd see reviews, I'd see it talked about, I'd hear a song here or there. Um this they always I always thought of them as um almost like a even though they're deeply in the nineties, more of a post nineties band. Like they sort of they would be a good like uh origins episode to me like there's sure. a ton of good material um or notable material obviously in the 2000s and mm-hmm. um they kind of came out of the 90s finding their own sound and really probably becoming a bigger band in a way than they were um maybe with the one hit and then a couple of the records they put out so i just always thought of them as a you know one of the bands that kind of got out uh were able to escape the 90s and continue to have a career and they were always on my radar. Yeah, they never seemed to fall back on their previous success. Yeah. You know, there's some of the some bands from the nineties have revisited their catalog in different ways, like Everclear doing an all acoustic album and mm-hmm. you know, Sponge doing stuff like that. Like it seems like those bands sort of like ran out of ideas, whereas Eels have stayed and Mark Everett has stayed pretty creatively interesting 
the entire way through. So let's get into this record. We're talking Electroshock Blues, released 1998, DreamWorks. Producers, uh, obviously E. So Mickey Petralia is one of the producers on this record. Also worked on albums by the Dandy Warhols, Luscious Jackson, Beck, um, Linkin Park later in the 2000s, Peaches, the Muppets Most Wanted soundtrack. I was very uh, excited to see that. Muppets, the Muppets movies are always um, awesome. And then also Mike Simpson, who is one half of the Los Angeles producing duo The Dust Brothers, who hmm. also you know worked on a number of soundtracks. The Dust, Bros- Dust Brothers are known for their work with... Uh, they produced a lot of early 80s hip-hop, like Tone Loke's Loked After Dark and Young MC's Stone Cold Ryman. And then they worked with the Beastie Boys um, on Paul's Boutique and then back on Odelay. And yeah, so interesting combination there of producers for this record. So Jay. Yes. Oh, one thing I do want to mention. Did you look at the, did you happen to see the list of guest performers on this album? No. John Bryan plays Chamberlain and Hammond organ on the songs mm-hmm. Climbing to the Moon. T-Bone Burnett plays bass on Climbing to the Moon. Lisa Germano plays violin on Ant Farm. Grant Lee Phillips plays electric guitar, bando, and backing vocals on Climbing to the Moon. So that's some interesting... There's a, a number of other folks, but those are just sort of the big names that, uh, that showed up to contribute to the record. So one thing you liked about Electro Shock Blues... It's definitely a, um, it sounds like a uh, experimentation with how can you use very traditional or almost, um, you know, retro-y kind of 50s or 60s pop music sounds and then kind of have them clash with modern, you know, vocal approaches and guitars and samples and drums um, so I think there's a lot of moments on the record where um, those two things come together in ways that don't sound like anybody else um, and are pretty successful in creating like pop oriented music, but with a weird, you know, a little bit of an odd uh, piece or part of it uh, that just makes it kind of stand out. And then there's some stuff on the second half of the record that maybe I, I like even more, which is more, um, I guess it's just traditional, traditional sounding. Like it's just acoustic guitars, uh, maybe an electric guitar over top to add some texture and then some strings. So like climbing the moon, like you said, um, with all those guest uh, musicians and the Chamberlain and the, you know, the strings and, little bit you know the drums are a little bit more organic and quiet um it it kind of becomes a slightly different record on the second half which is less experimental it's less about what i started with um but it feels you know really sincere unique but not overly um not overly complex you know some of the stuff earlier on the record 
can be fun to listen to and interesting, but also rather complicated from a, just a production standpoint and just a mm-hmm. sound standpoint. There's a lot going on. Um, so kind of like the getting, getting a little both, you know, I think a whole record of one or the other maybe wouldn't have been, um, help, help me all the way through it. But having both of those things on the same record, um, it's pretty different. And I think the pulls, he, he can do both, uh, equally well. He can be experimental and push the boundaries and he can also be fairly conventional, um, and still write, you know, solid songs. So, um, those are some of the things I liked about it. Got a three-speed and banana seat Sitting back on the sissy bar Went to sieve and got a drink Wish I was driving in daddy's car And I looked up at the sky last night And I thought I saw a bum Why won't you just tell me what's going on Riding down Scratching the itch that makes it feel good And I looked into the mirror last night All I saw was a pretty blonde And why won't you just tell me what's going on One of the things that, upon repeated listens, that I really enjoy about this record is the minimalist approach to the production the use of uh you know like fuzz and this stripped down deconstructed sound a good example would be like going to your funeral part one it's just got this like crawl you know vibe to it almost sounds like tom waits or something it's very creepy and a lot of this record has some has a lot of creepy dark lyrics and we can get into that a little bit more but it reminded me in some ways of PJ Harvey's To Bring You My Love in the minimalist production that's on that record, where a lot of, you know, some songs are just one guitar and it's very upfront, or it's just a bass and drum and they're, you know, the bass has some fuzz on it, a little bit of distortion. And I, th- I think that really helps focus the listener on his voice and the lyrics so much more than if this was a really loud record. And cause I think like lyrically speaking, this is pretty unique. And if it had been caked in layers of distortion or, or just the wrong production would have made this too messy. So. Yeah. I feel like I need to reconcile. Like when I say complex and when you say simple, it actually it does both in that, and I think going to your funeral is a good example, where there's a lot of different instruments coming in yeah. and being used and a lot of different switches and changes. But he does this cool thing throughout the record where there's never more than maybe three or four things to focus on at a time. Like he'll pull – when he adds something, he pulls something out. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like your brain is never overwhelmed with layers. You know, there's just – enough to make it compelling but not so many that you're like 
spend have to spend time processing it. The, to me, the complexity comes in and just to do that, you have to have a lot of movement shifts mm-hmm. in a short amount of time sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think that's super unique about the record too. Yeah, and I think another good example is Hospital Food, which I definitely heard the Beck sound in that one in in the sort of tropicalia beat and the horns but yeah. if you listen to it it's very minimalistic in terms of when he sings there's just a, a, a very simple drum pattern and a bass line occasionally a horn stab and then you get these great sort of ornette yeah. coleman-esque horn inter- interludes and it's a it's a bizarre pop song is the only way I can describe it. Like it's got a it's got a hook, not the hook that you would ever expect with him with him singing hospital food, but it <laughs> it like it does that thing where it lodges in your brain. So as soon as you hear that song start again, you're like, oh, I know the hook to the song. It shows off his songwriting talent that he's able to find that weird hook and make it work. Whereas I don't think that I think very few artists would be able to to pull that off. Like he's he's in the same uh, stratosphere as a Beck in that sense, but not going for the jugular in terms of you know this isn't Odile in terms of production in terms of being over the top. Mm-hmm. So Andrew, you mentioned about you know sort of slowly getting into this record over the years, what works best for it now for you? I think now um, just understanding the real depth uh, of the, of the lyrics and uh, paying attention to the narrative that's kind of going on throughout the album. Mm -hmm. So the album is uh, entirely focused over uh, E's sister, uh, Elizabeth, who uh, who committed suicide, and then I guess that was uh, shortly after the release of Beautiful Freak. Yep. Uh, so as he's getting famous, uh, he loses his influential sister, and then actually not long after that, uh, his mother gets diagnosed with cancer. So for me, probably just the really heavy themes weren't super appealing to me, being 15 and... Oh, what was popular in 98? Probably like Sugar Ray or something. Yep. Marilyn um, Manson. Sure. You know, I, I wasn't paying attention to the same type of nuance or storytelling that I'm listening to uh, with albums now. Um, so for me, what really works is listening to each of the songs and figuring out, you know, what where is... This song is talking about which character, his sister, his mom or dad, and where are they at their point in the narrative? You know, paying attention to, I mean, the the first track, uh, Elizabeth on the Bathroom Floor, 
you know, it's not poetry. It's pretty blunt. That is actually a song about his sister who attempted suicide at the time and was found on the bathroom floor. And I think it's one of the most, it's one of the best opening tracks on albums that really let you know what you're about to dive into. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, this is going to be a heavy album and it's going to be creepy at times. And you're not in for, you're not in for Novocaine for the soul part two, three, and four. Songs like uh, Three Speed on the front end of the uh, front end of the record, talking about uh, two young children, brother and sister, playing on a three-speed bi- three bicycle, uh, just innocent children. And then you get to the later half of the uh, later half of the record with songs like Climbing Up to the Moon, where it paints this picture of. Uh, a mental patient that uh, presumably his sister uh, and after attempting suicide and they're in a mental hospital, you know, he, he comes up with this song climbing up to the moon, which is like a really sweet way of honoring his sister who was committed to killing herself um, with lyrics. Like I won't be denied this time before I go out of my mind. So things like that, like just, you know, 15 year old me was not ready to deal with. Oh, yeah. Those paying attention to those types of details of how these how this character progresses through an album. And I say character. This is a real person or was a real person. Right. But um, I think my favorite um, little nuance there uh, is, you know, you, you follow presumably E's sister uh, from Innocent Child and in Three Speed to uh, th- through. Uh, a mental hospital to climbing up to the moon where she is. I, I feel like that's the song where she ach- achieves um, suicide, I guess to say where she actually does die in the song. But then uh, a song like L- the story for last stop this town, uh, the single I, uh, I was reading uh, his uh, ease memoirs. And I guess uh, when E returned from, uh, the funeral in Hawaii because she was in Hawaii. So he returned back to LA and his landlord said, you know, E, I don't know if you know this. I never told you this, but I see ghosts. And while you were gone, I saw a ghost waiting at your apartment. And E comes up with this song, Last Stop This Town, that 
as as she passed, she went to find him to fly around the city one last time before she ascends. Hmm. Wow. Reading into like so much more of what I view as the narrative of the record at this point uh, is what makes it super successful to me. I mean, I I'll, other things that, of course, like I really do appreciate the the funkiness of a whole lot of the first half of the record. You know, you said going to your funeral, cancer for the cure is another one. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, that middle stage where the songs are a little bit spacier. Uh, but the whole album is just kind of saturated in this somberness. Yeah. That mm. that, that it, to me is it, he paints a beautiful picture of what he was trying to achieve. We got to get it. I mean, there's so much sadness around yes. this record. And also, so I guess Baby Genius uh, if it ha- if it's partly about his dad, who correct. Was that, that's what my take on it was. Pardon. That's what my take on that song was. Yeah, um, he was a a quantum physicist, but he died when he was like fifteen. And he was a and teenager. He discovered his body. And he discovered his body. Now here's the crazy thing about this. So he worked at the Pentagon. Yeah. And when nine eleven happened. Was it E's aunt? Was was it his mom's aunt? Was one of his family members was on the plane that crashed into the oh Pentagon? I wasn't aware of that one. And he joked that he, I wonder if he hit her his my dad's old office. Oh, I mean, that's, just the that's the dark humor. Just the level of. I mean, in your tw- you know teens and twenties, the amount of stuff that he went through and pouring it out into this record is pretty astounding. Um, yeah, it's a, it, I mean, it makes it a really heavy record. And one of our commenters on on Patreon said, "This is def- Richard Waterman said this is definitely a mood album. I'm not putting this on before I go out, go out for a night on the town. I do like the Eels, but I find a lot of the albums repetitively somber. I actually prefer." The later stuff, like Soul Jacker and Ombre Lobo, which have some rockier stuff on them. In saying that, when the mood strikes, I could give the first three albums a spin when the mood hits me right. But I, I completely agree with him there. Like I could, this is a very specific listening experience that it is. It does. It does not lend itself well to throwing on. Like I had this playing in the morning as I was listening to it during the week, and my daughter came in. And I had to turn it off because it was like there was a lot of language on this record. And it's just she started to ask me questions. And I'm like, ah, we're not going to. This is this is over your head for a seven year old. My daughter's only three. So I, I just kept the volume low enough for the. Yeah, to not hear I switched to headphones. Sure. Um, so, yeah, this is. I you said it's a heavy record, but not like Guar. No, I mean, <laughs> you have picked heavy records, but this is a heavy emotional record. And when I yeah, started this, reading through all the one. history, it was like really a lot of rethink. You know, I listened to the record a couple times and then I did some reading and then I went back and listened to it some more. I'm like, whoa, this is this is not a story album. This is him pouring it out, which makes it a lot heavier. I'm I would be curious if, if you were a kid, like you said, you know, being 15, if you had purchased Novocaine for the, you know, bought beautiful freak for Nova King for the soul and, and 
those earlier singles and then you got this and you go what is going on here because there's no poppy i mean last stop this town (laughs) but it's still it it opens with the line you're dead and the world keeps on spinning it's direct i mean hello pop music you know i mean that's the poppiest song on the record i guess and that's that's the opening line. I gotta imagine that, that DreamWorks was like, wh- "Yeah, what, what is going on?" So I mean, as some theme themes from Dig Me Out, a lot of the times in the '90s, you have these records that are grossly inflated, uh, and you know when you when the record company gets one like that, and it's a, an album like this, they go. Oh my gosh! <laughs> what are we going to do with sixteen tracks of this? Where's Novocaine for the soul? Exactly, exactly. I I would, and I mean the next record was also DreamWorks. Actually, the next, I have several. Like I want to say the first five might be. Yeah, the next couple are all on DreamWorks. Souljackers on DreamWorks. Daisies um, of the Galaxy, I think, was the next one, and that is a much. Much more upbeat album. Shooting in. Oh, they signed. It was for Blinking Lights and Other Revelations. And when they Vagrant? signed to Vagrant. Yeah. Which is an interesting move. Yeah. I thought, and that's a double album. I, I had never known Vagrant to do, you know, big double album, big theme projects like that. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is that. Um, on that record, there's a song that he that E co-wrote with John Sebastian. You guys remember who bon, John Sebastian is? Remind me. He was the lead singer of the Love and Spoonful, who wrote the theme song to Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> okay, that's just an interesting songwriting yeah. uh, partner that I would not have expected. It's actually available as a four-disc set if you buy it on CD, where there's a live album as well. So my vinyl copy has four four records, if that counts. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, man. Yeah. Well, actually, I I guess. (laughs) What was the album before that? Was that Shoot Nanny? I think they said. uh, So, uh, Blinking Lights was this pet project that he had been doing for a while, and he had to take a break from it, and he just wrote Shoot Nanny fulfilled his uh, DreamWorks obligation, then went right back to Blinking Lights, I hear. That's what I hear the story with that is. Interesting. And yeah, for Shoot Nanny, Lisa, Lisa Germana was a permanent member, well, not a permanent member, but she, she played on that whole record. She played violin on the whole thing. Um, let's talk about, you know, we mentioned about the length of that, of uh, Blinking Yeah, Lights. I was saving that for a little bit, but I, I figured it has to come up that this is a 16 song record and it yeah. is long. Yeah, it's a well, you know what's funny? It's only 48 minutes, which isn't terribly long, but it is 16 tracks. In terms of getting in what didn't work, Jay, was that something that didn't work for you, the the length of this record? Cuz I I definitely got a little worn out. Not not too much. I mean, the 16 tracks is a bit intimidating. I didn't it didn't feel overly long um as a listen overall 
Um, the things that didn't work would be more, I, I don't love when it gets in the kind of like the, the overly kitschy kind of Beck sounds where, you know, it could be almost like a mod 60 song. And then they'll, that mixed with some of the, some of the drum loop stuff when it gets really loud, um, or like obviously looped, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. It just took me out of the mood, which I would. I'm fine with like the dark aspects of this record. Um, I kind of get thrown when it gets a little too like retro 50s, 60s, like quirky sounding. And that with the like wave, maybe at times way too like um, present drum loops. Um, Those are really the only two things that, I don't love. And it's mostly just because it kind of pulls me out of the mood. Like it takes me into this other place where I feel like for moments I'm in like, um, an Austin powers movie or something. Mm. Uh, and I want to be in like more of the mood of the second half of the record. Like I hear, I can hear like little, like Laurel Canyon, California, you know, pop stuff when it works really well. And I want to hear more of that. I want to, and a little less of the, um, cut and paste back approach. What um, What do you think of like a track like the medication is wearing off, where it it sounds like a drum loop, but I do like the vibe of that song. Um, yeah, I don't mind that one as much, and I think it's just because that whole second stretch of the record, like I'm in, it, it gets you in such like this headspace that when those drums come in, it's not too bad. Um, I think it's more the first half of the record where it's a little bit more of a roller coaster of like brass and horns and bigger drum beats. And, you know, like I said, these kind of almost like 60s mod trippy kind of things, uh, instruments or sections of songs that um, I don't I don't love as much as once I got to the second half, you know, I was like, okay, this this makes a ton of sense to me. Um, so th- that's kind of uh, the biggest criticism I would have. Um, and mostly just cause I guess I just want to stay in that, that mode, um, of, I guess the darker approach and feel. See, I felt like those, I felt like a song like cancer for the cure, which has that like modish, you know, the organ and yeah. whatnot, like it needed that to balance out the darkness. If this had just been all of these slow uh, you know a guitar based or or keyboard based songs i i don't know that i could have been able to listen to it more than a few times because i I just needed some lightness here and there to shake me out of that so i feel like those those actually worked I'm sure the hospital food is not high on your list, but 
I just needed yeah, some, some chaos here and there. Didn't love that. Didn't love um, going to your funeral. It starts, starts a little, sounds a little cartoonish. Now, now that I know more deeply what the record is about, like a lot of, a lot of this is starting to click into place. Um, and I'm, uh, it makes more sense to me. Even the album cover, like this is an album cover that like, when you look at their other album covers, it, it doesn't look like the other ones. Um, the others are fairly bold and graphic and like distinct. And this is like lo-fi sketch. Like it's got this like folkiness to it that the mm-hmm. other stuff doesn't mm-hmm. have. And it, it makes a lot more sense. The songs are a little bit lighter and the album cover. I think if you really, um, if this, you know the story and it all comes together. Are there aspects of this record that don't work for you, Andrew? I mean, it's long. It's a long record, and I, uh, I don't know. I could probably justify making sixteen tracks a few less. You know, it. I guess me just knowing um, how they sound live. I've heard some of these songs that, you know, in the middle, that it kind of to me hits a little one note where you see songs like "Going to Your Funeral Part Two. Uh, and Ethel's God, like those songs, I know what they have pulled off live with those songs. And I feel like their live performances sometimes really improve upon those songs. Like, I, I think they're good songs, but I think that um, a song like uh, Ethel's God, I think the bass line, which is done with some type of synthesizer on the record, really gets drowned out by the samples that are being played backwards when I know their live version has this really, really cool bass line that's really up front. So to me, like there's certain parts of the record where it's a little one note and I know what they can and have done with some of those songs. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't want to say it doesn't work. Cause I think each of those songs as they've been recorded are, they all play their piece into the story of the record but um yeah i mean there's a couple songs that i could probably justify as keeping as b-sides instead of forcing 16 but um what's interesting when this was originally released it was originally released on vinyl however it was released as a double 10 inch in order to fit it correctly because 44 minutes is like the most for a record Right, and this is forty-eight, but you can't really do a double album because you'd have one song on that <laughs> on that second album. So they did a double ten-inch to make it all. So it was like four songs per side of of the two records, and now it's like really hard to find. Of course, uh, they there was yeah, a repress in yeah. in twenty fifteen where uh, it looks like. They spread it out. They must have done a. Um, I don't know how they organized it so that it would work. I just grabbed my vinyl. I'm looking at it. I don't know. Did they? They didn't adjust. They I don't think they adjusted any type of. No, they just did. Work. They only did like three or four songs per side, where they probably could have fit five, because these yeah, songs are fairly five. short. So. But uh, that's that's one of you know as as rare as vinyl is for '90s releases, especially late '90s, to do a double ten inch is pretty crazy for a 1998. 
Like I, I would okay. be fairly. I, the only other band that I know did a ten inch release is Triple Fax, Fast Action did a twelve a you ten inch release of Broadcaster. I I have that right over here. You do? Oh, I've been looking for that. Yeah. You know, actually, I, I'll tell you the truth that vinyl. Well, once lockdown's over and vinyl shops can open back up. I, I find it every once in a while in the Chicago area. Oh, do you, well, Chicago, yeah, that makes sense. Here in Columbus, we don't we don't see many of those, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sure Chip Midnight has several copies, but um, <laughs> Chip's hoarding them all. Chip or, or Jim <laughs> Copany have have several, uh, you know, f- sealed copies for uh, for when the band re- reunites sometime in the future. I mentioned that in terms of the discography. They, you know, they scored a number one single with Novocaine for the Soul in the U.S. That also that was modern rock number one, and then on the general charts it went to thirty nine, and it, it did well. It was number top ten in the U.K. This album produced one top forty modern rock hit with Last Stop This Town, and that's it. Is that a shock that there's no? Huge single for this following Novocaine for the Soul. No, that's not shocking at all. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you. I, I'm, I assume that DreamWorks probably tried to follow up with a second or third single, but I couldn't tell you what those are. Cancer for the Cure was the other single, and then they moved on. There was only two singles released. I would have thought something more like Climbing Up to the Moon, but... Nope. I don't know. They, uh... I mean, I, I didn't even hear like I had in the Chicagoland area that there not even last stop. This town really made the radio. I mean, I only knew it because I recognized the band name and it was in a bin at a radio station at that point. Hmm. I mean, they didn't make the airwaves. I couldn't need. I honestly, I couldn't tell you what the second single off of Beautiful Freak was, because if it wasn't Novocaine for the soul, you didn't really hear it. It was your lucky day in hell. OK. And then Beautiful Freak was also released, and Susan's House. So there was actually a number of, you know, at least promo singles that Rags to Rags was sent out as a single. I'm on Discogs just looking at. Um, but a lot of these, you know, the Rags to Rags was just a promo single that went out in the US. But in the mm-hmm. UK, they released it with like BBC radio versions. Sure. So. Because you know, obviously, the, the the singles chart in the UK was much more important, and they they would do those multiple singles in the UK to get play. So that makes sense. Would this have been a good uh, sophomore slumper visited? I would um, I would think so. I mean, in terms of success, now I don't know what the numbers were in terms of sales per se. I'd have to look and see if that's actually listed. It looks. I I just looked it up. It's around uh, only about thirty five thousand. Wow. And then what did I wonder what? Uh, Beautiful Freak did. That I would have to guess a half a million at least, just based on the single. When you have a number one single, I would imagine one you would think a lot more. But I mean, that might be one of the biggest drops in the nineties to do a to have a number one single and then have your next record drop under a hundred thousand. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Like I said, though, I I had never heard it on any type of modern radio back then. 
They're, nor now, but right. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing beautiful freaks album sales, but that's all right. That's okay. We can just surmise. We ask our our patrons to vote on whether it's a worthy album, a better EP, or a decent single. Um, I we we did get some other comments. Gary Moran said this is one of my favorite all time albums. It's the Eels at their best. Interesting. And then Darren Leach said it's a double A side single for me. Cancer for the Cure uh, as the single with Last Stop This Town as the double A double single, and then the B sides are Climbing to the Moon and Dead of Winter. Hmm. So two different, very different opinions. On this, Jay, is this a worthy yeah, album, that's... a better EP, or a decent single for you? Uh, I'm in a worthy album. Um, I like the majority of the tunes here. Um, I didn't think it was overly long at 48 minutes. It feels about right. I, I would, you know, they cut a little bit of, you know, this kind of the noisy experimental stuff. They could get it down probably to, you know, 40 minutes or 42 minutes would be even better, but I'm not going to. Knock him for that. I think it's, you know, there's a lot to dig into here lyrically, thematically. I think sonically it sounds great. It offers a lot of different, even though it has an over, like a, definitely has a tone and a mood. I think it also offers quite a bit of variety musically um, within that space too, um, to kind of get into. So this feels like a, a record that, you know, you might not, might be like, oh, okay. When you listen to it the first time, the more more time you spend with it, I think you appreciate it and kind of grows on you too. So, yeah, I'm gonna worthy album. I'm gonna agree with you. I think we might have different songs in what our worthy album would be, but I would be at like a solid eleven or twelve tracks out of the sixteen. I don't think I would go with the whole record. I'd probably cut it down to about forty minutes. But you would probably get rid of, you know, hospital food and. Cancer for the Cure and some of the stuff that I I actually yeah I I don't love like Last Stop This Town I mean it's okay I don't dislike it it's just not as good as the other like Climbing to the Moon to me is gorgeous Dead of Winter is great Ant Farm is great I I I even like P.S. You You Rock My World um which we didn't talk about but you know so I I just I prefer that mood I, I I don't necessarily think there's any i don't think those other songs are bad and even like one or two of them would be fine so i would get the record down and maybe like 14 13 or 14 tracks and focus it more on that material all right andrew are you are you fully embracing the record or or would you make a few trimmings a few cuts you know it's it's not a perfect record but it's a really really good one in my eyes um and it's one like you guys have said, it's you can't listen. There's too much there to really think you're going to take it all in on the first um, on the first go. And uh, it's not an album that you can, you know, just put on a Monday morning and have your week. But, uh, yeah, there, there's a couple that I, I would have left to um, to B sides, um, even though uh, Baby Genius is the sole one that I really think is about E's dad. I, to me, that that one kind of breaks my mood a little bit uh, where it is in the album. Yeah, uh, I think that um, hospital food actually, to me, would work if it was pushed a little bit later in the album so that it wasn't such a stark difference between the first six songs and maybe the last. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I mean, if this hypothetical, hypothetically, if this fit on one record, side A and side B would be two totally different albums, sometimes pretty different albums. Uh, so I think like in so much of what I dig about the album is how much character development is uh, well, development or the way the narrative unfolds. Uh, since that's so big to me, uh, sometimes I have a little bit of issue with the sequencing, but uh, how it all ends with uh, PS, you rock my world ending on that little positive note and uh, kind of taking a, deep breath full of grief and just kind of accepting where he is in life. That's, that's a great album closer to me. I I do think it's a really good album. And the majority of people who voted agree with you. 63% said we're the album. 13% of our voters said better EP and 25% went with decent single. So I would wonder what that single is. Well, Darren said a double single. Which is basically an EP. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, four songs is an EP to me. Right, exactly. I guess if it just you know if it's four original songs, it's an EP. If it's one song with three remixes, that's a single, uh, sure. according to '90s um, mini single and and you know various single uh, formats. So yeah, the majority of people agree this is a worthy record. Definitely worth checking out. I think also just because of I sort of lumped eels in because they're a one hit wonder with like bands like Marcy playground and cake and sort of these oddball bands that didn't quite fit the narrative of the nineties, especially in the mid to Mm -hmm. late nineties. And I feel like there's some stuff worth revisiting here that people probably missed first time around. And the first several uh, eels records are really different. So I think I mentioned it earlier that the next record is just far more upbeat, poppy, and uh, they had a they had a good single, but um, on Daisies at the Galaxy, Mystery's Beautiful Blues, uh, that was another one that was in a a movie. But um, he he refused. They wanted to push it as a single, but he didn't. So he included it on the record, but he made it a hidden track. Well, Andrew, thank you for bringing to this uh, album to us. I'm glad we, you know, it only took 490 episodes, but we finally got to talk about eels on this podcast. Well, thank you. Oh, now, really close to 500. Really close. Now, Ten away. I'm really, I'm really curious to know where we're going with what it would be. Pick five. I can't. I have no idea what you would pick. I know. Between this and Verbena and Guar. Uh, I have not thought that far ahead. I don't know. When I email you guys, I usually talk about three or four things and then decide on a fifth. So, you know, I like a, I like a lot of things and I don't, um, I don't know, try to keep it interesting. Like it. You're a wild card. Yes. There's there's (laughs) no rhyme or reason. It's like, all right, this time we're doing this. Cool. I like it. Cool. If if you want to be cool like Andrew, Join us over at Patreon and uh, support the podcast via our tiers. Not our our tiers from our eyes, but our tiers that uh, you can choose from to uh, vote in polls and and get all kinds of cool swag and and be part of the community that we have going on there. 
Um, and also you can suggest an album at digmeoutpodcast.com that those suggestions go into those polls that our patrons get to select or, or, or vote in, as well as uh, our patrons get to vote in 80s episodes, which will have a new 80s episode coming up very soon. And then you can also go to our website to join the Box newsletter. Comes to you every week, new releases, 80s and 90s relevant uh, to the, you know, pad, anything to the podcast. Books, movies, albums, plus you get your one-minute reviews uh, by me. If you want to hear my voice some more, you can listen to them or you can read them. That's just that simple. And then uh, if all this uh, tickles your fancy, leave us a positive review over at Apple Podcasts. We're, we're shooting up the charts in uh, Scandinavia, so let's keep it going. Let's, the, this, the Swedes love us. That's all I got. That's all I got. So, for JM Tim, we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. I want to be tonight this time Before I go out of my mind Over matters, got my foot on the ladder And down. climbing up to the moon Whose cat's yeah, meowing back there? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's the elder statesman back there. <laughs> it's like uh, our cat in the morning because he has to stay in the basement or else he scratches at everything in the middle of the night. He screams mm-hmm. to be let out so he can have his breakfast in the morning. But when he screams, it sounds like he's saying hello. <laughs> he's like, hello. It's the <laughs> most disconcerting sound coming out of the basement. <laughs>